We are going to be concluding this morning the prologue of John's Gospel. We're going to be looking more particularly at verses 17 and 18. And uh, the thought occurred to me that uh, this is such a rich passage, it's tragic, tragic that we can't spend more time in it. And we'll probably never get here again. Isn't that amazing? So with that, let's read verses 1 through 18 one last time together, and then we'll focus on the last few verses. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning Him. He cries out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because He was before me. From the fullness of His grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. That's such a rich passage, and that really summarizes the entire Gospel of John. And it won't be long before we're actually jumping in and and engaging the, the Gospel of John. I want to focus on the last few verses. Uh, Last time, from verses 16 and 17, I suggested to you that John tells us a number of things about Jesus. First of all, he speaks about the fullness of His grace. He says, from the fullness of His grace, we have all received. And that word fullness, again, remember, comes from the Greek word pleroma, and it really speaks of the fullness of God. All, all that is in God really becomes available to us. God does not hold back. If He gave His one and only Son that we might have life, He's not about to hold back on anything. So all that is in God, His whole fullness becomes available to us. Isn't that exciting? We can go to God or we can go to Jesus, really, with any, any need, any issue, and we can find that need, that issue supplied. And we do so 
through this avenue called faith. Simply because I believe He will supply. Must I wait? Sometimes. But I can trust Him. The Bible tells me we have received His grace. And we shall continue to do so. We can go to Him with any need. Just think, if you have a need for courage, and who of us doesn't need courage, true? You can go to Him and say, Lord, I need courage. You already know that, but I'm asking. I'm presenting my need for courage. I fully acknowledge I need your courage, and that need will be supplied. If we have need for wisdom, and who of us doesn't need wisdom? We can go and with confidence know that wisdom will be granted If you need strength, strength will be granted. Love. Sometimes it seems like our our lives are so devoid of love. Lord, I, I need love. I need your love. Pour your love into my heart. If you need forgiveness, that need also amply, amply supplied. Forgiveness. Jesus provides for all of his people's needs. And he does so from the fullness of his grace. This treasury, if you will. This inexhaustible treasury of his grace. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, that it is through our Lord Jesus Christ that we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. The idea that the text in the Greek is in the perfect tense, the verbs in the perfect tense, meaning we perfectly stand in this field of grace, surrounded by grace, over, overcome by grace. God is gracious, and He desires for us to know His grace and to benefit by His grace in our life. Paul goes on to say in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, We have been given fullness in Christ. It's there. We've been given this. The issue is, do we realize it? And are we realizing the fullness of His grace in our life today? Peter puts it this way, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, His divine power has given us a few things that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him. What? No, a few things. <laughs> You guys. No, he's given us everything we need. Do we have an excuse for anything? No, he's given us everything. He wants us to have everything we need for life and godliness. So again, we see that same theme rehearsed uh, by Peter that Paul writes and John underscores. So the first thing that John tells us about Jesus is we have received the fullness of His grace. Secondly, we have received one blessing after another. So that fullness of His grace is is further characterized as one blessing after another. As I suggested to you last time, in the Greek text, it's an awkward construction. It's literally grace instead of grace. We have received grace instead of grace. That's kind of a weird way to say it, isn't it? What he's talking about is, I receive grace, and then I have, I have this need. I, and then now I receive grace instead of that grace. 
I have another need, and I receive your grace instead of that grace. So most commentators and most interpreters would say it's, as the NIV has it, blessing upon blessing or grace upon grace. It means very simply that we have his abundant supply of grace for every single need, and that supply of grace is never, ever exhausted. It's never diminished. Grace will continually follow grace in a limitless, never-ending flow. Do we, do we find it um, a blessing to be gracious just in our own life? Yeah, because the Lord is gracious, then we are to be gracious in turn, right? However, does our graciousness have a limit? Usually, yeah, always it has a limit. I mean, we can we can start out really great being gracious and showing grace and showing grace, and uh, you know, to a spouse, to a child, to a friend, to in those relationships. But because we're limited, we find that there's a limitation to our graciousness, and and sometimes we 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 feel like people presume on our grace. Isn't that true? And at that point, we say, "Enough, enough." God is not like us. But because of, of our experience, we very often, in lots of different ways, this is one of those ways, we project our experience onto God. And so we think, well, God's, God must be really frustrated with me. No, God is gracious. And His grace knows no bounds and no limits. I have to remind myself of that every single day. And every time I do, I think I just get a little closer to understanding what it might actually mean. And it causes me to be overwhelmed by who He is. His grace knows no bounds and no limits. Does that, does that mean I can do anything I want? Sure it does. You can do anything you want and God will be gracious to you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He will graciously take you to the divine woodhouse. <laughs> and he'll say, now do you remember the way you should be going? It's not punishment. God doesn't condemn us. He doesn't punish us. He's gracious. But he knows when to discipline, doesn't he? Yes, he does. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul's Entreaty to the Lord at the end of Second Corinthians, and it's a passage that most all of us are very, very familiar with. Paul had some kind of um, malady, some kind of problem. He describes it as a thorn in his flesh. It was something that really bothered him, and he was troubled by. And so he says that I, I asked the Lord three times to remove this from me, and the Lord's response was. Uh, no, I'm not going to remove it, but my grace will be what? Sufficient. Now, sometimes when we think of that word sufficient, we think, oh, you know, I'm just going to get grace measured out by an eyedropper. You know, it's just sufficient means meager. That's not the point. God is telling Paul, I, I want you to trust me. I'm going to meet that need, and my grace is sufficient to meet it. But I want you to understand something. I want you to understand that in your weakness, my strength, 
my power is perfected. Paul, you need my strength and and you need my power. You're not self-sufficient. Do most of us believe we're self-sufficient? Well, yeah, we act like we are. We may not know, may not actually believe it. We act like we're self-sufficient. We go off and do our own thing. We lean on our own understanding all the time. We don't acknowledge Him in all of our ways. We don't trust in Him with all of our heart. That's a tragedy of, of, of how so many Christians today live their Christian life. It's as if God is reserved for Sunday. But He said, My power is made perfect in weakness. It's when we are weak, we are reminded how much we do need Him and how much we must depend upon His grace. But you've got to believe that He's gracious. You've got to believe that He will extend His grace to you. And when you believe it and you trust Him, then that weakness, that trial, that difficulty is not as threatening as maybe you had thought it might be. I visited a lady in the hospital the other day and She's undergone seven major abdominal surgeries in a month. I'm amazed that she's alive by the grace of God. Yesterday I went to see her, and she, she hopes to be released in another week. She's been in there since, I don't know, over a month, month and a half she's been in the hospital. And so she's hoping to be released, and she's getting better. She's recuperating, so we're thanking God. But when she leaves the hospital, she has to leave with some stuff attached to her. And she's, that's not how she wants to live her life. And so we prayed, we talked about it, and she said, but I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning, accent on the I-N-G, I'm learning to trust Him. I'm learning to surrender my life in another way. In new ways. How many know what I'm talking about? Sure, all of us do. The Greek word for sufficient that Paul uses in that verse is the word archaeo. It Paul uses it also, interestingly, in another verse in Second Corinthians, in chapter nine, verse eight. Now listen to how he uses it here. It's not meager. The context is not meagerness. He says, and God is able to make all grace, now notice this, all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need. Now that phrase, all that you need, is the English translation of the same word that is, that is translated in our other passage as sufficient. All that you need, everything that's sufficient for you, and you will abound in every good work. Do you see those terms? All, 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 every. Does God intend for us to lack anything? Every good thing, everything you and I need, everything, He supplies it. And He does so because it's His grace. He is gracious. He knows our need even before we ask. Well, if He knows my need before I ask, why do I have to ask? Because you've got to acknowledge your need. God gives a full sufficiency that we may have all that we need at all times so our lives will be fruitful. How many want fruitful lives? Yeah. 
the longer you're a Christian, the longer you realize, I want my life to count. I want my life to be fruitful. I submit to you that only in Christ, only as Christians, can we be all that God has made us to be and can we do all that he calls us to do, regardless of our circumstances. It's only in Christ. I hear this all the time. I, I just don't, I don't know what to do with my life. I'm a little confused. I'm a little lost. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what God has for me. Invariably, those situations, those people who are lost, God is really not first in their life. Jesus says what? Seek me first. Seek my righteousness first. Seek my kingdom first. It's a matter of priorities. In all these things, I'll take care of them. I'll, I'll tie up all the loose ends. I'll direct your life. Acknowledge me in all your ways. It, it, the message is the same throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. If you want to know his will for your life, read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Because at the last sentence of verse 2, he says, then you will know God's will. And he characterizes God's will as good, pleasing, and perfect. But so many people are at odds, and so many people are back and forth, and they have no clue. Pastor, can you help me discover God's will for my life? Yeah. Start studying the Bible. No, no, I mean, I mean, what should I be doing with my life? Start with God. Talk to me about your relationship and your commitment to Him first. You're going to be spinning your wheels the whole rest of your life. God wants you to, to be blessed. He wants your life to flourish. He wants you to be the very person that He's created you to be. He wants you to do the very things He's created you to do. But if you're not walking in His grace... If you're not receiving His grace, you're going to miss it every single time. And your life is going to be frustrated, frustrated, frustrated. The life of, of the Christian, the life in Christ. That's Paul's favorite term to describe a Christian. We are in Christ. That life in Christ is rich and ample beyond all description. For anything and everything, there is in Christ is ours. It's ours. Think about that. We are, we are his brothers, aren't we? Paul says that we are not only sons of God, but we are heirs with Christ. Heirs with him. If everything belongs to him and everything is put in subjection to him, everything belongs to him, what does that say about us? <laughs> Can you believe that? We're going to inherit... We're going to inherit a whole brand new kingdom with Christ. Co-heirs. I don't know about you. I can barely balance my checkbook sometimes. And here I'm going to inherit a whole new kingdom with him. Awesome. It's mind-blowing. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of the things that God's prepared for those who love him. God's generosity is inexhaustible. Somebody say amen to that. It's inexhaustible. You can't exhaust God's generosity. He never tires of being gracious. And he keeps heaping grace upon grace upon us. You say, well, where is that grace? It's being heaped upon us. We're standing right in the middle of it. Well, where is it? I don't, I don't feel it. I don't experience it. It's right here in your life. 
And you're only going to realize it by faith because you believe. You say, thank you, God, for your grace. And the more you thank him for it, the more you believe his grace is already present in your life and through your life and around your life, you're going to begin to see it in ways that you hadn't begun to understand. It is grace upon grace upon grace, far beyond our reckoning. Paul, at the end of Romans, says this, To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. That's all he can say. God, glory to you through Jesus. Amen, he says. That has to be our exclamation. We come to the Lord's table and we take the elements and the elements are an expression of God's grace to us. We come and we take those elements and we say, God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you provided. Thank you for your unending grace to me. Praise be to our God through Jesus Christ. The third great thing that John tells us, you find in verse 17. So the first two things are in verse 16. In verse 17, we find the third great thing that he tells us about Jesus. He says that this fullness that comes to us does not come by law. It comes by Jesus Christ. See, again, Jesus is the centerpiece of everything. The whole Bible is about Jesus. When you read your Old Testament, you want to find Jesus in the Old Testament. This fullness does not come by being as good as we can be. You can't earn this grace. It's why, that's why it's called grace. This fullness of grace does not come by working to please God as much as we can. It does not come by keeping the rules and the commandments. It does not come by law. Far too many of us still live by the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. Far too many of us have this idea because we're legalists at heart. Let me give you a definition of legalism if you don't know it. Legalism is this. Acceptance based on performance. As long as I'm performing, I'm acceptable. We live that way with each other. We teach our kids, you're acceptable if you're performing. Bad little boy, bad little girl. Nasty little boy, nasty little girl. We teach our kids to be legalists. We feed into that because we tell them, Overtly and covertly, we say, you're acceptable only if you're performing, rather than us coming to grips and receiving God's grace. God's grace says, no, no, you're acceptable, now perform. Is there a difference there? I can rest. I can rest in that you accept me as I am, warts and all. The pressure's off. Now I perform because I'm accepted, because I'm loved. It's much easier now for me to respond to His grace than to try to work hard to get it because if I'm working hard to get it, I'm never sure if I'm going to get it because I keep breaking down. Am I making sense? Some of you? Good. doesn't come by law. We can't keep the law anyway, can we? There's no way you and I can keep God's law perfectly. We are, by definition, imperfect beings, and imperfect beings cannot keep God's law perfectly. 
to any degree of perfection. You say, well, I do pretty good. I keep most all of it. But have you ever broken one commandment? James says if you break just one, you've broken it all. It's like you've broken it all. You, all, the, all the stuff you've done, you've kept, doesn't make anything, any difference if you just break one. You just, you just shot the whole thing. That's a bummer, isn't it? Well, if the law doesn't help me there, what is the law? Why did God give the law? He gave the law to make us conscious of sin. How many are thankful for the law? Man, without the law, we would not be conscious of sin. We would not be aware of it. We would never even know something's wrong because there's no standard. We think just the way we are is the way we're supposed to be. The law makes, is the standard now, so we can judge our lives against the standard. We go, oh, man, I'm really missing it. I thought I was a straight line. I'm really a crooked line. The law makes us conscious of sin. More than that, the law actually serves not only to make us conscious, it actually serves to stir up sin in us. I love this. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 7, the the function of the law. And, uh, you know, the the great example, I think, is, and and many of you heard me use this example before. Go home this afternoon after church and put a sign in your window that says, please do not throw rocks at this window. Now, you laugh because it's ludicrous because putting a sign in the window to not throw rocks is an invitation to what? Somebody's going to throw a rock. The sign acts like the law. And that sign, that very prohibition, will, will, I promise you, it will stir up in somebody the sinful passion to throw a rock through that window. So don't put a sign in the window, please. Don't go home and say, Pastor Zach said to put a sign. No. Tell your neighbor right now, don't do that. It was simply an illustration. You have no idea what I get blamed for. (laughs) The law can only make us conscious of our sin. The law stirs our sin up, but and the law also condemns us for not keeping it. The law says, if you don't keep me perfectly, I condemn you. For your sins and your failures, I condemn you. Man, it's no no win situation there. And all that reveals the need, reveals the need for the grace of forgiveness. How wonderful it is when somebody forgives us, really forgives us. I forgive you. And it's genuine. Isn't that marvelous? What a load is lifted off. What a, and if it's genuine, the relationship is now poised for what? Healing and reconciliation, isn't it? If you and I are to be acceptable to God, if we are to be acceptable to God, it is because we hear about His grace through Jesus and we come to Jesus to receive that mercy and grace. It's very simple. That's how I become acceptable to God. Indeed, we would not, could not even know the grace of God unless Jesus came to reveal it to us. I'm glad he came. Aren't you glad he came? 
to reveal the grace of God. Otherwise, man, we're, we're living under a pile the whole, our whole life. Paul writes to Titus and he, he couches it in these terms. Chapter 3, verse 3 says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Does that ring a familiar note to anybody? You don't have to raise your hand. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, don't you love that? But I was a wretch, but then the kindness and love of, of our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His what? Mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He, he, he saved us through this miracle of being born again. The washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. What a marvelous passage. You see, it comes through who? Jesus reveals it. Jesus is the agent of that grace. I know that we know that, but it bears repeating again and again and again, just like coming to the table again and again and again is an absolute necessity for our life. We have to come back. We have to be reminded. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. No one meets the standard. But we are justified freely by His grace that came through Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, again, he rehearses the same truth. He said, it's by grace that you have been saved. Through faith. And the faith, he says, was, was not even yours. That too was a gift of God. You be saved by faith, not by works that anybody should boast. Look at me, I'm so good. No. So while the law on the one hand shows us where we failed, and the law on the one hand condemns us and stirs up our sinful passions, on the other hand, the law also really is an expression of the grace of God. God is gracious to us to show us our need. He's not mean. The law also is is an expression of the logos. It's the word of God. And the Logos, if you will, inspired Moses so that Moses could see and Moses could teach what a glorious thing a human life can be. If you read and study the law of God, the law of God is the standard, isn't it? It's the standard to which we aspire. It's it's perfection, if you will, if you could keep it. You can't keep it, obviously, but but that's that's the picture. We hear this all the time that, that uh, we, we want to keep the bar high. We want people to aspire to excellence. It's easy to lower the bar, isn't it? It's easy to accommodate to people's weaknesses. And the more you do that, the more you will do it. And the more you do it. And you lower the bar and you lower the bar and you lower the bar. All of a sudden, there's no bar. There's nothing for people to aspire to. There was an old saying that, that uh, my wife and I heard years ago, and, and we tried to apply it to our son as we raised him up, and, and it goes very simply like this. 
Treat me as you want me to be, that's what I'll become. Treat me as I am, and that's what I'll remain. Wow. So simple, and yet so profound. Hold the bar high. God holds the bar high. He holds the bar high for us so we can, we can have a vision of what a human life can be and so that we can see the things that demean human life and we can turn from those things. Oh, yuck. The law was something that the Jews exulted in as a mighty gift from God for which they can never sufficiently thank Him. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 97. He says, Oh, How I love your law. The the righteous Jew saw the law and he saw it inspired him. Inspired him. Gave him a vision of what his life could be like. The law pointed to that which was noble. It pointed to that which was holy. The law pointed to that which was righteous and good. The law created in man, it was meant to create among other things in man, a hunger for something bigger and better than we are. Again, calling us to higher higher aspirations. The law has made us see something. When you meditate on the law, it makes you see something of the infinite possibilities of life. But, in and of itself, the law is powerless to affect those possibilities. And the reason is, the Apostle Paul again tells us, Romans chapter 8, verse 3, because the law was weakened by our sinful nature. We just can't do it. We just can't do it. I aspire to these things. I aspire to them. I just can't reach them. You see where the answer comes from now? Where our help comes from? Paul says the law was put in, was, was like a schoolmaster put in charge to lead us to Christ, to lead us. You, I become aware of my, of my, the impossibilities of aspiring and reaching this goal. And now the law leads me to Christ. I hear about the grace and faith. And it's through Jesus now. It's through Jesus. John's Gospel, you'll see again and again as we get into the Gospel, you'll see again and again the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the, the, rulers, the rulers of Israel, how they were antagonistic to grace, antagonistic to uh, uh, Jesus, antagonistic to His message. A classic example is in John chapter 9. They would, they would argue for the law, the law, the law not really understanding its purpose and the effect of the law. And they would argue for it. A classic example, as I said, is John chapter 9. This was the, the occasion of the man who was born blind and Jesus healed him of his blindness. And then the, the teachers of the law came, verse 28 and 29. They said to this guy, they, they were insulting him. They said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. You see, they made a differentiation. They didn't see the, the, the real purpose of the law. They just felt like they were legalists at heart. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. They're saying, one, you, you cannot be the disciple of both, apparently. You've got to be a disciple of Moses or this fellow. 
John chapter 1, verse 17 makes it clear. It makes it clear that Moses, Moses did indeed play an unparalleled role in God's economy. He did provide the first five books of the Old Testament. We call the Torah or the law. And John, when he points to Moses, he's not juxtaposing Moses against Jesus, as so many people do, law and grace, law and grace. You have to see it all as an expression of God's grace. The grace of Jesus Christ. It's through the grace of Jesus Christ, Paul says in Romans 8, 4, that all that now all the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us. What does that mean? It means Christ fulfilled the law. Every jot and tittle of the law has been fulfilled by Christ. Every every requirement. He's fulfilled it. Now, if I'm in Christ, what implication does that have for me? What is it? I'm in Christ. If He's fulfilled the law and I'm in Christ... All the righteous requirements of the law now have been what? Fully met in me. He got the A. He took my final exam. He got the A. And he credited it to my account. And it's all legitimate. Isn't that great? So I still aspire. The law is a beautiful thing. I don't discredit the law. John's not discrediting the law. He's giving some perspective to us. Because it all comes down to the grace of God through Jesus. In, John, in Hebrews chapter 3, the writer to the Hebrews is telling these people, Jewish people, some of who are professing believers, some who are possessing believers, persecution is coming. And some of them are tempted to flee the persecution on the church and run back to the covering of Judaism. And the writer says again and again and again, don't go back, don't go back, don't go back. Stand firm, persevere, persevere. And he gives example after example after example after example how Jesus is better, better, better. And in chapter 3, he says Jesus is better than Moses. He says Moses was the servant of the house. Jesus is the son. Jesus was the son. Marvelous. So we don't achieve this fullness by by the law, but rather through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 18, he makes this point. In verse 18 of our passage, John chapter 1, John says, No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. And everyone in the ancient world would agree with that. Now, John here is going to drive home his point that, that, that Christian revelation is absolutely essential. In other words, God tells us is essential and the exhaustive character of the Christian revelation. No one has ever seen God. People, people throughout, throughout the ages, they were fascinated by God, but they were depressed also, and they were frustrated in many ways. Uh, because they regarded God as, as infinitely distant from them and utterly unknowable. You couldn't know Him. You couldn't relate to Him. God was just out there someplace. Everybody, everybody has in the deepest part of their life a belief and understanding there is a God. 
Everybody does. I don't care if you're an atheist. You can tell me you're an atheist all day long. Down deep inside, you know there's a God. You're frustrated because you can't connect. You're frustrated because you can't understand. You're frustrated and, you, and you, you've eschewed all organized religion because that's not been a help to you. There's lots of reasons. But people, people are just frustrated by their inability to make this connection to know God. Even Moses, if you go back to Exodus chapter 33, God has done this great work. Moses is excited. So Moses is God's friend. And Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, no. Really, Moses wants to see God. And God says to him, no, 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 you can't see me. No man can see me, see my face and live. You're not constructed for it. You'll come apart molecule by molecule. You don't understand what you're asking. So what does he do? He says, he says, I'll put you up here in a cleft in the rock. And then I'll pass by and I'll declare my name. And you'll see my glory, my afterglow as I pass by. Would that, would that be awesome? Not even Moses could see what God looked like. When God spoke to the Israelites, he reminded them in the book of Deuteronomy, when he gave the law to them at at Mount Sinai, he said to them, remember, he said, I spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. No one in the Israelite world of the Old Testament thought it possible to see God. Even the great Greek thinkers, they were frustrated. Xenophanes said this, guesswork is over all. It's just, it's just, it's just a guess. People are just guessing today. It wasn't just in ancient Greece. Plato put it this way. Never man and God can meet. What a tragedy. Celsus put it this way. God is a way beyond everything. (laughs) Utterly unknowable. The consensus was that whatever God was, he, she, or it, whatever God was, was far from being within the reach of ordinary men. You just couldn't know God. You have to have a grasp of of the frustration of people. I know there's a God. How do I reach Him? How do I connect with Him? How do I know Him? Or her, or it, or whatever it is. So, when John says, no one has ever seen God. There would be nobody in the ancient world who would disagree with him. Nobody. But John doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to make this startling and this tremendous statement that Jesus has fully revealed to men what God is like. (gasps) Isn't this awesome? If you want to see what God is like, if you want to know what God is like, where should you look? You look at Jesus. You look at Jesus. Tell me what God is like. Look at Jesus. What's God like? Look at Jesus. 
Tell your neighbor. Tell your neighbor right now. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to see God, look at Jesus. Tell your neighbor. Philip. Philip asks Jesus. In the 14th chapter of John's Gospel, Philip says this. He says, Lord, show us the Father. And listen to what Jesus says. He answers Philip and he says, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Wow. If you want to see what God is like, if you want to know what God is like, where should you look? You look at Jesus. Now, why should it be that Jesus can do what no one else has ever done? Why should it be that Jesus and only Jesus can reveal God to men? Now, you and I would understand the answers. But somebody else is going to say, well, well, how come only Jesus can do this? John tells us why. In verse 18, he gives us three reasons why it can only possibly be Jesus. The first reason is that Jesus is unique. He's the monogenes, the only begotten. Now, that term originally had a physical interpretation. It was used purely in the physical sense. We saw it back in verse 14. We meet that same term here in verse 18. He is unique. And John uses that word to mean not physical. It's not a physical expression, uh, like physically born and such. He's talking about unique. Jesus is unique and he is specially loved. Think with me. Is it not obvious, or I think it should be obvious to us, that an only unique son would have a unique place and a unique love in his father's heart? Is that a fair statement? He's my son, my only son whom I love. God's own testimony is is to that effect. So this word uh, that John uses came to express the uniqueness more than anything else of Jesus. It is the conviction of the New Testament that there is no one like Jesus. He is absolutely unique. He alone can bring God to men and men to God. Secondly, He is God. Jesus is God. Again, the text reads literally, the only begotten God. Or God the only begotten. You have the same expression as you have back in verses 1 and 2. The word was with God and the word was God. So not only is he unique, but he is God. This does not mean that Jesus is identical with God. There's a subtle difference here, a very, very important one. He's not identical with God. He is in mind, character, being, and essence. He is one with God. Unity. One with God. So to see him is to see what God is. And thirdly, Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. Now, if you have an NIV translation, it goes this way. He is at the Father's side. But again, it harkens back to to verse 2 where where we see that the word was with God. But John in verse 18 now tells us that he is 
literally, in the bosom of the Father. To be in the bosom of somebody speaks of, of a deep, personal bond of intimacy. Would you agree? I mean, we don't use that language today, and not very much, but, but if you understand the terminology and how the, how the, how the Jews understood it and used that language, uh, in the bosom of somebody meant an intimate, intimate, close relationship. It's like the, 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 the baby or the child is, is in the mother's bosom. Or a husband and wife even, you can describe an intimate relationship as, as the husband being in the wife's bosom or, or vice versa. Even close friends can speak of the community and the union of a relationship between close friends. When John uses the phrase about Jesus, he means that Jesus and God, between them, there is complete, complete and uninterrupted intimacy. Something you and I just, we can only, we can only, um, try to get a hold of in terms of understanding the intimacy that they shared. And it's because Jesus is so intimate with God that He, and only He, is the one that can reveal God to men. He is one with God. Therefore, He, and only He, can reveal God to men. Muhammad can't do it. Buddha can't do it. Krishna can't do it. All these gurus cannot reveal God to men. There's only one person, and it's for those three reasons. Jesus has come to us from the very heart of the Father. Indeed, only He has seen the Father, and no one else has. In Jesus Christ, that distant, unknowable, invisible, unreachable God has now come to men, and new possibilities have been born. Think about that. God has entered into time and space and history. New possibilities have been born to us. Divine power now has been released into a broken world. Divine power has been released into broken relationships that populate that world. And there is, there is power now for these new possibilities to come about. All things are possible now. All things are possible for us through Christ Jesus. New possibilities, new hope, new life. Who of us hasn't desired a second chance? Done something, oh man, I would love to have a second chance. New possibilities. And the grace of God affords those new possibilities. The theological truth that the world finds so foreign lies right there. And that is very simply this. Transformation and hope. Transformation and hope cannot be the fruit of some human endeavor alone. You and I cannot transform ourselves. We try and we try and we try. We read all the self-help books. We listen to all the self-help tapes and CDs. And we go to all the seminars and do all this stuff. We cannot change ourselves. Only who can change us? Jesus, that's right. Jesus. Only God can take the initiative. Aren't you glad that God has taken the initiative? Does He owe us anything? He owes us absolutely nothing. We are rebels. We hate Him. He takes the initiative. 
We can't change ourselves. He takes initiative with us. What do we do? What's our part? Our part, very simply, we must see, we must believe, and we must receive all of His grace. And as we do, we are changed. We are reborn. We become God's children, co-heirs with Christ of all that is His. Once again, we will walk with God. We'll talk with God in the garden, in the cool of the day. Oh, don't you love it? Have fellowship, sweet, uninterrupted fellowship with God. All to the glory of God the Father. That's what it's all about. A lot of times we think it focuses, we're the focus. No, He's the focus. All of this for His glory. His glory. So one day around that throne, we're all going to be praising Him with all the creatures, all the angels, all the rest of redeemed creation, praising our God. Amen, church? Amen. With that, we close the prologue to John's Gospel. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for all that you give us, all of your good gifts. Elders, would you come be prepared to receive people who desire a blessing from the Lord? Father, we love you today. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you for revealing what God is like to us. Thank you for the superabounding grace so there's no limit. We love you this morning. And we reaffirm our commitment, our dedication to you, to your kingdom, and to your will. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, church? Turn to your neighbor and share with your neighbor one thing that you're thrilled about with respect to the grace of God in your life. Tell, tell them one thing that you're thrilled about. And if you have need for prayer, just come down the front and the elders will be praying for you. Let's stand together, church, and praise God before we dismiss.